0: Hi everyone, this is Katie Gordon, and I'm missing my co-host Brandon Saxon this week while he's out of town. My guest for this episode is Dr. David Klonsky, who is a clinical psychology professor. I became familiar with David's work because of his huge contributions to the field of suicidal behavior research. Over time, I've also learned that David and I share other interests as well, including talking about scientific processes, mixed martial arts, and perhaps most importantly, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Star Wars. I was really happy to get the chance to talk to David about all of these topics, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Please check out the show notes afterwards so you can learn even more about David's excellent work. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters.
0: David, it's nice to have you on today. Thanks so much for coming on Jedi Council podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I've always wanted to be on a podcast that had the word Jedi in the title. I <laughs> feel like uh, I feel like big things are are coming, like uh, like like Luke when he realized that his life was going to be more than farming on Tatooine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll try to live up to that expectation then, <laughs> as the podcast continues.
2: <laughs> sounds good.
0: I was thinking about. If we had actually met in person, and I and I think we did in Philadelphia at ABCT on a panel around 2007. Do you have any oh, recollection wow. of I, that?
2: <laughs> well, a long time ago, I would have told you I have a good memory, but that's changed. Uh, I have a terrible memory now, and no, I don't. I, I do remember that a conference that we almost got together to watch. I don't, I don't remember if it was UFC or some sort of like MMA competition because I made the connection that you had done judo. But, but I remember we didn't end up beating up.
0: That's right. And that was actually ended up being a very eventful evening because that was when Ronda Rousey was beat by Holly Holm.
2: Oh, that was that. Wow. Wow, I, I didn't remember that. Yeah, that was huge.
0: Yeah, we, we ended up. Uh, actually, Brandon, uh, the co-host who's out of town for a training right now, saw that fight with me, and then you and I messaged a little bit about it. I think because it was it was shocking to me. I don't think it was as shocking to you as it was to me.
2: No, I'm I'm going to take a little bit of credit on that because uh, like uh, Rousey was like a 12 to one favorite. Uh, she was undefeated at the time. No one thought she could win. And there's just the matchup. I thought favored home. A lot of the conditions favored home. So I, I, I hedged a little. My, I have I have a tweet that says I put the odds in home's favor, 60%. That's a hedge. A friend of mine who's an analyst, actually, you know, on television picked home, and the like the uh, the moderator of the show had to quali- uh, had to clarify that it wasn't a typo because people didn't believe that he was actually picking a Holly home. So that was that was pretty exciting.
0: Wow. Well, everyone at the bar I was at was shocked. So I was impressed that you had any doubt. I think my, well, of course, Rousey's record seemed like it would favor her, but also because she is a judoka, I think that it would be hard to convince me that she wasn't going to win every time. So that that was really shocking to me.
2: Well, well, the perfect foil for her was someone who's an expert at managing distance and only closing distance on her terms. And Holly Holm's whole career has been exactly that, so it was uh, it was it was the right matchup for Holly Holm. And you know, she she went on to lose her next fight against someone where the matchup wasn't quite as uh, ideal.
0: That's right. Yeah i I think that um, the other thing about Rousey, just before we get into, actually, it will tie together both of the main interests we're going to talk about today she lived in north dakota for a while which yeah which is really interesting before going back out to california and as you know she's been kind of outspoken about suicide prevention just because it's impacted Mm -hmm. her personally yeah Yeah, and she talked about her own suicidal desire after losing that match
2: right now i do remember that i know her father died by suicide and that she has been supporting suicide prevention. And that, yeah, I, I remember, like you do, that she said she she felt she wasn't sure what her life was for anymore uh, because she had the, she was attached to this vision of herself as, as sort of this, this, this undefeated fighter. Um, and yeah, to her credit, she spoke openly about that.
0: That's right. I, I haven't actually followed much what she's doing lately. Do you know what she's up to these days?
2: I do. She's transitioned to pro-wrestling. Like like the 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 fake entertainment kind, and she's been a huge success. A huge success. She's you know I think she's also gotten married uh, to Travis Brown, who's an MMA fighter. They're at least long term partnered. It's possible they they also formally got married. Um, So uh, as you know, as far as you could tell from the outside, she's made a very happy transition to to other things in her life.
0: Oh, that's exciting because I think her Rowdy nickname was from watching professional wrestling when she was younger.
2: You're exactly right. It was from a Rowdy Roddy Piper, and she um, like the way she dresses is, is like an homage to him when she comes out for her matches.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I, I liked her autobiography or her memoir. It talked a lot, actually, about there's a lot of mental health stuff in there, including when she had an eating disorder as well.
2: Hmm. <laughs> It's, it's nice to have examples of people who can talk openly about these kinds of struggles, but also normalize the, you know, the recovery and the, you know, achievement of goals and, and things along those lines as well.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Speaking of which, one of the things that I've found really important about your work is that it seems like you've taken complex subjects like suicidal behavior and tried to find frameworks that are accessible, understandable, and meaningful for people, such as your three-step theory. And I was wondering if you'd mind explaining a little bit about what that theory is and how you arrived at it.
2: Well, those are both bigger questions, or I don't know if they're bigger questions, or at least questions that I haven't learned how to give short answers to. Um, From a meta perspective, I think our job as scientists and i think it's easy to lose sight of this in the field because there's a lot of other competing factors you know getting whether it's media coverage or publishing in a high impact journal or coming up with something that something that appears clever or novel but i think uh, the real job of a scientist is to kind of play detective and that's a very very practical approach you know detectives don't try to do things that are clever or novel or flashy they just try to look at the clues and follow them as carefully as they can and see what they mean and I, I feel like uh, you know, I and, and others uh, of my contemporaries were lucky enough to come along in the field at a time where there are a lot of clues. There's hundreds, thousands of studies. Uh, and while none of them provide answers, they're, they're each a clue. They each are pieces of the puzzle. And the three-step theory was really just an attempt to take all the pieces of the puzzle that, that there are and try to assemble it into a, a, co- a cohesive, evidence-based uh, explanation of suicide In terms of how I came up with the theory, it was a complete accident. I was very happily, for the first 10 years or so of my career, just doing careful, exploratory, descriptive work, which I felt was the most important work. Um, I I know a lot of others agree that sometimes there's too much emphasis on jumping to to theories uh, or strong hypotheses in our field. But a, a distant family member who had been struggling for a long time, I heard something about that family member and then suddenly got concerned about his suicide risk. And then I had to ask myself why now. You know, this is someone who's been struggling on and off for a while, and I suddenly realized that I had implicitly formed a theory of suicide. That I then quickly jotted down in an email, sent it to my um, most senior graduate student at the time, Alexis May. And uh, I don't know if we need to pause for the train horn in the background right now, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> or if I should keep chatting. That's okay. It
0: adds it adds a dose of realism. Um,
2: yeah, and, and maybe maybe a little bit of drama. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I basically just sent her an email that said, I think I have a theory. What, what do you think? And uh, and so Alexis May has been my co-author in a couple of these three-step theory papers. And uh, conversations with her did sort of um, revise and refine conversations with other folks in the field. Sometimes even questions at conferences, like from Dave Jobs, uh, at one point has sort of forced me to, to articulate things. And, and I accidentally came up with a uh, with the theory.
0: Wow, that's so interesting that you were able to take, I mean, that's kind of how you hear about science working, although it doesn't always go that way, that there can be this context of discovery, I guess, if you're using that framework, and then go on to test it or fit it or, or see how it fits with the data. So that's really interesting to hear the story behind that.
2: Yeah, a lot of things were converging. I mean, part of it, I think, was, you know, when you spend a decade in a given field learning about, you know, not just your own discoveries, but constantly immersed in what other people are doing, it shapes your thinking. Then there's maybe a, a clinical situation, or in my case, it was sort of a, a distant, you know, family situation where, you know, suddenly I, I there, there's a motivation to figure something out and some things uh, sort of accidentally crystallized. Uh, but then along the same the same lines, um, some of the things that some of the factors like pain and hopelessness that I was seeing as, as really the, where one needs to begin when understanding suicide. We also were in parallel trying to measure different motivations of suicide that were, have been emphasized by different theories like social isolation or and belongingness and like, uh, escape and, you know, also pain and hopelessness. And, some help-seeking interpersonal influence perspectives. And again, we were doing this in a very exploratory way, which is the kind of research uh, I did for most of my career. And pain and hopelessness kept coming out at the top, no matter where we looked, adolescents, adults, inpatient community. So there were a lot of things sort of converging at one time that led to what I think in the end is a relatively efficient, um, easy-to-understand, evidence-based explanation of what's happening when it comes to suicide.
0: Yeah, I certainly feel that way. As you know, I wrote a blog post about it for my (laughs) website because I feel like really the way that it's constructed is a way that can advance public discussion about suicide because I I was noticing and reading different write-ups of suicide in the media that sometimes it's often it's oversimplified where they're just looking kind of at one major factor or there's over-focus on famous people, which, you know, kind of uh, doesn't give the full range of stories of how people become suicidal. And then on the other end, there were really complex types of coverage of suicide where there are so many risk factors that it's overwhelming and can feel like you don't know what you'd actually do in a situation to try to help someone.
2: Right. Um, And and you're you're getting at what I think is one of the central challenges of any theory of something, which is that it needs to, on the one hand, be be able to account for tremendous individual variation and complexity, but on the other hand, it needs to be simple enough to be uh, understandable and actionable. And that's a a hard balance to achieve, and, and good theories do that. And I think when we look at other sort of classic theories or explanations or laws of nature, I think we can see that in action. Uh, you know, this is something I got to write about in a, in a commentary recently, which is probably the favorite thing I've done during my, my past year on sabbatical. Uh, and, you know, when you look at theories in, in physics, for example, like Newton's laws of motion, um, you know, what's really neat about those is on the one hand, it's incredible incredibly parsimonious. Uh, you know, and, and no one says that, like, oh, God, there, there's so many kinds of motion. Uh, you know, there's what happens in the water and when wind blows things and when you're in outer space and when you're driving or falling and you know how could you possibly explain something as complex and and contextual as motion with a few laws and well the answer is you can now at the same time how those laws manifest vary greatly by, by context. You know, one of the laws is force equals mass times acceleration. Well, there's an infinite number of forces and also forces interact on each other. So the world is still very messy and it's not like the, this, this, you know, this beautiful set of laws allows you to predict everything. There are some things that are just too complex to predict because there's too many forces simultaneously acting and some that forces that maybe can't be anticipated or accounted for. And yet at the same time, you have this set of laws which beautifully explains what you see almost anywhere in the universe, although not at the quantum level, not at the speed of light, but most uh, most uh, circumstances. And I, and I think people sometimes lose sight of, of that kind of balance. So there's a lot of knee-jerk criticisms of theories that they're, well, suicide's complex, how can you have a, 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 an efficient theory or parsimonious theory? At the same time, it is possible to get too parsimonious when you say suicide is about just one thing. It's unlikely that it's literally about one thing. And what I think uh, was very fortunate on my end is uh, Thomas Joiner came along and put out his theory in 2005, where he broke down the suicidal process into explaining desire and then explaining to progression to action. Now, obviously, within those ends, there's a lot more, there's a lot of nuance. There's different levels of suicidal desire, different forms, there's different kinds of suicidal actions that vary on method and lethality and intent and all that. But I think Joyner really gave the field a framework and a way to organize thinking, a way to organize the literature, a way to organize theory that really uh, became a platform for for a lot of us. And um, that ended up being the foundation on which I built uh, my particular perspective.
0: I really liked that commentary that you wrote, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I think those are excellent points. As you may guess, I also appreciate Joyner's contributions to the field and also personally, just as he was my mentor in undergraduate and graduate school. So I got to be there during the time that he was writing his book, Introducing the Theory, and also that the, the later psychological review paper came out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I liked that in your three-step theory paper, you referenced that, but you, you build on it. And would you mind kind of briefly describing what the three steps are for people who aren't familiar?
2: I'll do my best. The truth is, though, is um, each each of these steps has uh, a context and an explanation um, that, you know, without that, things can sound oversimplified. But I'll I'll answer your question anyway, because it makes sense to answer it um, and to ask it. Uh, Step one addresses when suicidal desire develops, and uh, it says that there are two things that are required. Uh, First is, is pain, and that's because in a very fundamental way, we're all creatures of behavioral conditioning. We do things that are rewarded we avoid things that are punished you know if you touch a hot stove when you're even a young child learns very quickly to never do that again and so if someone's experience of of life is that it's painful it's aversive it's miserable then a powerful instinct kicks in we don't want this anymore and, and you want you want to you want to avoid that at all costs at the same time you know we we also have thoughts uh, we're not just behavioral beings we have cognition as well and so if you if you have, if you're in a lot of pain, but you see a way out or you think things will be better in the future or things will be better if you do such and such, that's where your focus is going to be. But if you become hopeless that there's a way out, um, and now you have this combination of, of painful, aversive m- m- misery in your life and hopeless that this will ever change, now that powerful instinct kicks in. I, I don't want this anymore. And maybe being alive isn't for me. Step two addresses when suicidal desire escalates. And most people with suicidal desire or ideation, it's a little bit modest. Like sometimes I wonder if I would be better off dead as opposed to I would kill myself if I if I knew how to do it or if I knew it would quote unquote work. And uh, what we say is that suicide ideation escalates when pain exceeds uh, one's connectedness. And we define connectedness broadly. It can be to loved ones or to family or to friends or c- a community, but it could also be to um, a job or, or a, um, you know, a role, really any sense of purpose or meaning. And the idea is that you know, pain in one's life is, is what kicks in that, that instinct, I don't want this anymore, but c- connection to things that matter is what makes life worth living. So it's a little bit like step one's reasons for dying and step two is reasons for living, except I've always found reasons for dying and reasons for living is a very cognitive way to talk about it. And I think that this is at least 90%, you know, emotional and, and limbic. So if, if someone is has pain and they're hopeless about it getting better, but they're, st- they're still connected to things, there's still things in, that keep them invested in life, they'll be one of the majority of people who feel suicidal sometimes. Sometimes I wonder if I would be better off dead, but but that's it. That's where it stays. But if either pain is is much greater than connectedness, perhaps because maybe connectedness is low, or pain is so strong it just overwhelms your ability to be connected, even if you're someone who otherwise had lots of connections or roles or people or community that 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 matter to you. When pain gets high enough, you just can't concentrate on any of that. You know, if you've ever experienced food poisoning and can remember what that was actually like, I think our brain makes us forget. But if you get in touch with what it's actually like when you're going through that 24 hours of food poisoning you're just trying to survive. You can't be excited about a party or enjoy your favorite show or have a good conversation with someone. You're just overwhelmed with misery. And what if that didn't end? What if that went to day two, day three, day four, day five, you know, week four, week five, you sort of lose your ability to be connected. And so when pain exceeds or overwhelms connectedness, that's when you really start to feel that uh, I, I'm suicide might be an option for me. And then step three addresses the fact that most people with suicidal ideation uh, do not make an attempt. And I think this is where uh, another place where Joiner's Contribution comes in, pointing out what perhaps should have been obvious, but no one was really explicitly addressing in theories of suicide. It is scary and hard to make a suicide attempt. We are deeply wired to avoid pain, injury, and death. And so even if you have high suicidal desire, it's hard to actually make that attempt Joiner introduced the concept of acquired capability to make the attempt. And we start at that spot, but simply expand capability. We we fully agree that acquired uh, capability is, is something that is likely to be real. There are different kinds of experiences in life that make people more used to or habituated to things like pain and injury. For example, non-suicidal self-injury, maybe people who have a lot of exposure to trauma or, or injury or death, whether it's medical settings or, or other kinds of settings. But we also uh, acknowledge that capability can come from dispositional contributors. Some people are simply born more or less squeamish about things like blood or pain or injury or more fearful of death. Uh, And there are also a whole universe of practical contributors to capability, things that have to do with knowledge of lethal means, access to lethal means, things along those lines. So in short, you know, are you... Step one, are you in pain and hopeless about it getting better? You'll develop suicidal desire. Step two, is your pain exceeding or overwhelming your connectedness? If so, your suicidal desire escalates. Step three, are you capable of making a suicide attempt? Uh, If the answer is yes, then uh, then you'll make a potentially lethal attempt. If the answer is no, you'll remain one of the majority of folks who have suicidal ideation but never attempt. I tried to be succinct, but that wasn't very succinct. And yet at the same time, I felt like I left so much out. But there you go for a starting point.
0: I I appreciate that explanation because I think that I would guess that this resonates with people who are experiencing suicidal feelings or maybe family members who are concerned because at each point, like you said, this is grounded in research and there are empirical findings that back this up, but it it also kind of makes an intuitive sense, not that you could know all that ahead of time, but the way you explained it, you can kind of imagine being in, that people in that situation would feel the way that they do.
2: Yeah, of course it's it's essential to continue to validate all the claims of the theory, and that, that's ongoing. And I think that's just something that, you know, if people find the ideas worthy enough of testing, that's something that just unfolds over five or ten years when people uh, examine different aspects of the theory using different measures in, in different populations. Um, by different investigative teams, and eventually we'll you know we'll learn what parts of the theory are useful and what parts can be refined or, or, or evolved. You know, on the one hand, I really believe that given everything we know about suicide to this point, I really think this is the most uh, accurate, parsimonious explanation there is right now. At the same time, I also think that people, uh, you know the the new generation of researchers uh, are going to come in. And they're going to have a lot of knowledge that they take for granted that I didn't have and that they're going to see holes or gaps or things that could be improved. Um, So I I sort of have two minds about the theory. But in terms of what you said about other folks reacting to it, you know, while it's extremely – it's essential that we get – that that we pursue scientific evidence, I have also – there have been powerful reactions from people with lived experience, from people who've survived suicide attempts, from people – from family members who have lost people to suicide – Um, And that's been, I don't know, I don't have the right word for it. There's times when it's been gratifying because people will come up to me and say, I finally understand my child's suicide and and thank you for that. There's people who've commented that it's, um, it not only resonates with them, but it feels like a compassionate explanation as opposed to other kinds of explanations that the experience is less compassionate. And for me, that's been one source of powerful evidence that the theory is on the right track.
0: Wow, that, that's really an important part of this, and I think that the way that you described kind of how long it takes science to unfold and also to understand how it ties into people's lived experience, you can see how it's such a lengthy process, and especially with the challenges, I think, inherent in studying suicide, it can't happen as fast as most of us would like so that we can prevent more suicides. But one thing that I do like about your theory, well, I like a lot of it, but one thing I'll point out is that the practical applications, too, because even when you get to the third step, you can kind of have an idea about practical things like restricting means that would prevent someone from going from ideation to action. So I think that's really important.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Mike Anestis um, has... It has really run with that in recent years. I think in some some wonderful ways. I'm really focusing on practical capability, and you know, it's not just means you know restriction, quote unquote, or means safety. But but he's he's learning how. It's not just prevalence of let's say firearms in U.S. households that matters, but it's storage laws. You know, is am, ammunition stored separately from the firearm? There, there's a lot of um, nuance that that has not yet been fully explored in terms of practical capability, and so I do think that that's one you know, really useful direction the field's moving in now.
0: Definitely. How did you get into studying suicidal behavior in the first place?
2: I really wish I had a more compelling answer to this question, uh, because the truth is it was a little bit of an accident. Um, I I got into, I mean, you know, for for going back far enough, my initial interest was math and then became physics. And when I went to uh, college at Washington University as a freshman, I thought I was going to go into physics. Um, I think I had, you know, I don't think this is unique to me by any stretch. I think I just had some deep desire to want, to want to understand the world better. And I saw physics as the best way to do that. But I think if you want to understand the, the world of humans better, psychology becomes the best place to do that. And I think it turns out that once I got deeper into physics, I didn't have the same talents that I had for, um, let's say mecha- mechanics in physics, I I really felt like, oh my God, I'm so good at this. And then we got into things like electromagnetism and uh, you know, applications of calculus. And then I realized I'm not so good at this. And at the same time I was taking lots of psychology classes at which I think were feeling the same need, feeling like I was somehow understanding human nature better. And psychology is also really interesting in that it requires a, a, a unique kind of blend between very social um sometimes almost humanities kinds of topics but if you're going to make any kind of progress you need to be very rigorous methodologically and 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 uh, statistically and psychometrically and that it turned out that that was a blend that played better t- to you know my strengths and weaknesses than physics i went to grad school to study personality disorders um just because i was interested in personality like you know thousands of other people and came across self-injury you know, along the way every now and then, and, and always had an interest in it because it, it, it's a salient behavior. On the surface, it's extremely counterintuitive. We spend most of our lives trying to avoid pain and injury, and yet there's a subset of individuals who self-injure on purpose, and there must be some benefit to that. It also was very clear, even when I was, uh, I think, uh, a third-year grad student, that the formal diagnostic classification of self-injury was just egregiously inaccurate, you know, in dsm four, self-injury was a symptom of borderline personality disorder, and that was it. And self-injury was apparent in, in lots of folks without that particular diagnosis. And so I got interested in, in understanding self-injury better. It just seemed like a, a something that was undeniably real and important, that was undeniably not understood very well. And I think there was also sa- something satisfying in, in, a, in a social scientific field uh, to study something that was undeniably real. Because when you study something like uh, a personality trait, there's there's different operational definitions. There's even different um, ways to, to define it Define it at the construct level. It's hard to know for sure whether you're, you know, how real the construct is. You know, is narcissism the same in the United States as it is, you know, in, in India? Maybe, maybe not. And But self-injury is self-injury. It, it's, it's, it's very physical. And f- from there, it was a natural uh, progression to understanding what's the link between self-injury and suicide. How are they similar? How are they different? So that's that is how I ended up becoming a suicide researcher. You know, now that I think about it, there was one practical thing that uh, that also explains it. And I want to give some credit to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, because my very very first grant I ever got was from them. It was a very small pilot grant, but you know I was on the tenure track, had the existential anxiety about surviving that most folks have, and when I got my first grant, and I almost teared up when I saw I got it, even though it was tiny. I thought maybe there's people who value what I have to offer. And, and that also ended up being a powerful reinforcer to do suicide research. So that was the the reason why I did my first suicide research. And uh, suddenly fast forward however many years, and now I identify as a suicide researcher more than anything else.
0: Wow, that's, it's really interesting to hear that. The panel that we were on back in 2007 was about non-suicidal self-injury. And right. it seems like there is still so much to learn there and, inter- and interventions needing to be developed, but it seems like there's been more interest and and more progress in that. And I appreciate you also talking about the grant because part of, I think, when I was a professor and pre-tenure, I think that was one of the most stressful things is not knowing if if you're on the right track or if your questions are good enough. And so it can be really, well, it can be very reinforcing to get that kind of f- feedback or funding for a question that you're asking. So that's really cool to hear that too.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you know, it's interesting that you say there's still a lot to learn about non suicidal self-injury, which is true, but you also immediately started talking about the treatment end. And I think that is also a reflection of how far the field has come. When I When I dove into it, the question of why do people self injure was just wide open. You know, the most highly cited paper on that topic was a theoretical paper that, that basically just reviewed, I think it was you know six different conceptual explanations that had almost nothing to do with each other. And I think the field, you know, I, it was some of the work I did, but you know, lots of other folks uh, did work on this as well. I think we've more or less figured out why people self injure, and now it's almost obvious to, to folks coming up in the field that it has to do with uh, quickly down-regulating negative emotion, particularly sort of high-pressure, high-arousal negative emotions. Now, there's still a lot of other questions. You know, how exactly does that work? We have some guesses about mechanism, but we aren't sure. But But that is a starting point. You know, I think the careful descriptive work and the functional work I think has 90% been done now, and it was maybe 5% done 15 years ago. So I think that the field's come a long way, and that's been very satisfying. And in part, I think that's a reason why I moved on from it, because the question I was most interested in was mostly answered. Now, I'm really glad that there's people doing the work on the treatment end right now because that's exactly where you go next. I think once you understand the basics about a phenomenon, now you understand enough to develop uh, not just effective treatments but efficient treatments. So I'm glad the field is doing that. There is a lot more work to be done. And at the same time, I feel like the, the that field moved a long way in a short time.
0: Uh, that That's definitely true. I think that actually – so that panel 10 years ago or whatever, I think that what I was presenting was very simple, <laughs> retrospective – recall of how people, it was about reinforcing properties of non Mm -hmm, social self-injury. But I know the paper you're talking about where you reviewed all of those things because I have cited it many times and it was, it is interesting to see, well, we've, we've kind of, maybe we have some idea of who's more vulnerable to it, but we, but the maintenance is like you said, through negative reinforcement. And then just yesterday I saw that there was a review on treatments and it still seemed like there need to be more. Kind of randomized control trials and things like that, but there's a lot more than there was a few years ago anyway,
2: yeah, yeah, no, no, no question, and you know I'm a little out of touch with the non suicidal left injury field now, so it is possible that even in the treatment end it's advanced more than I realize
0: there's there's still a long way to go, but i I was pleased to see there have been people looking at least at some different ways to do it, and it seemed like there are bigger studies than the last time I looked, but i'm out of I'm actually out of touch with that field too. I, I just happened to see that. I think someone tweeted it out, and that's how I saw it yesterday.
2: <laughs> well, l- lucky for us, there's, there's still good people doing good work in that field.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it appears to be in very capable hands, so that's great. Um, speaking of, of Twitter, I wanted to ask you, actually before I ask you about a tweet that you tweeted on Twitter, um, is there anything else we should talk about with regard to suicidal behavior or non-suicidal self-injury before we move on to the next topic?
2: I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to anticipate what people might might want, might have interest in. Um, so I'll I'll leave that as your call.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let's. I will. I'll link to a bunch of your stuff if people want to find out more. I'll do that. Sure. Okay. So I'm going to read a tweet of yours that you wrote in response to news that a popular, widely embraced, and much researched hypothesis that the serotonin transporter gene. 5-HTT-LPR, is linked to major depression, was not supported in a recent empirical view. I'll link to this in the show notes. And what you said was billions wasted on bad science that looked bioscience-y, a terrible outcome due in part to funding agencies, NIMH, that unthinkingly pursue biomarkers at all costs. Similar stories for fMRI, endophenotypes, oxytocin, and connectomes have emerged or will emerge relentless negligence it seemed like that resonated for people where Where did that come from, or what what did you mean to express by that just because Twitter is so succinct so people who aren't maybe familiar with the area what what did you mean by that?
2: Yeah, well, you're right it was the serotonin transporter gene you know that people have been researching for years and getting millions of dollars to research for years and now it's been debunked and it's just the latest uh, you know and the number of, you know, flashy biological things that that just go absolutely nowhere after NIH throws millions and millions at it—it's um, just egregious at this point. So it's certainly been something I've been thinking about for a while, um, you know, for a decade or so. Translational endophenotypes was was the you know the primary focus of NIMH, whatever they thought that was, and some review came out of you know hundreds of studies uh, just in the last year or so, um, and. Concluded that absolutely nothing has replicated from, from that body of work. Probably hundreds of millions of dollars wasted, and maybe billions. You know, oxytocin was huge. It was going to be like the cuddle, you know, uh, chemical, and and that you know that seems to have gone nowhere. And I think I think this could have been anticipated. I, f- I feel like I've been f- for at least a decade now watching people do these studies, and they're underpowered, they're poorly thought through. They often compare, uh, I mean, there's just so many problems with them, you know, insufficient sample size, control groups that are healthy controls. So if the pathological group with the disorder is different, we have no idea if it really is specific to the disorder or just the psychopathology in general. Um, Often completely ignoring the reliability and other psychometric properties of the body. Biological measures they're using, like as if you're, you're measuring something biological, now you don't have to care about any form of reliability, you know, any form of consistency, you know, work to demonstrate that it, that it gives consistent answers. And so I just feel like I and others have been watching this unfold for more than a decade now. And at the same time, uh, one of the reasons it resonates is because all the resources are being pushed towards these, these um, methods. Um, so all the grant funding goes there. And all the flashy journals, all the top journals want to publish this stuff. And I I just feel like I've been watching, you know, every time I see studies along these lines published, four out of five times, nine out of 10 times, there's just an absolutely fatal flaw with the sample size or the control group that was chosen or the psychometrics of the fmri measure you know that's being used and it's just been unbelievable someone maybe 20 years ago i wish i could remember the exact title they they wrote a paper on fmri and brain imaging and the title was was a beautiful title something like uh, just because you're you know imaging the brain doesn't mean we should stop using our heads but that is exactly what has happened in the field by those with the most power completely stop using our heads in terms of the the work that is being supported where all the money goes. And it's just been a gigantic waste. So now as people are getting smarter about problems of non-replicability, people are looking at these biological trends and respiratory sinus arrhythmia is a mess after you know two decades or so of people looking at it. Uh, Tons of the FMRI research is a mess and it turns out uh, there's even problems with the basic reliability of, of some of the approaches. Translational endophenotypes went absolutely nowhere. Oxytocin is exploding. Uh, serotonin transporter gene going absolutely nowhere. Some people are acting surprised, but I, you know, I promise there's plenty of people who've been watching this train wreck happen for over a decade, and it, it just it just feels like negligence. It's um, it's uh, you know it's just such a shame. It's such a misdirection of, of resources.
0: Yeah, it it really is. I completely agree with that, and it it is harmful ultimately to the public because these are public funds often that are being used to investigate these very serious problems, and then to come away with nothing except maybe more prestige or flashy publications out of it, that that's just, it, it seems unethical to me.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And it's not that, you know, on the face of it, you shouldn't pursue biological methods. But it is true that on the face of it, the majority of studies that fall into this category have had just egregious violations of basic scientific principles whether they're just completely underpowered or they're using methods with unknown reliability or in some cases just flat out bad reliability, um, whether their choice of control group is on the face of it the wrong choice. Um, th- these, these flaws have been obvious. The other thing that's obvious is um, you know, p-value phishing. It's clear that, that a lot of these studies that they end up publishing p-values that are just under 0.05 and it's clear that there is you know a million different ways they could have run the analysis, control for that or don't control for that, um, use this analytic approach or that. There's tons of researcher degrees of freedom that that have gone into this. Because when people spend so much money on something and then they can't get a result they're looking for because the measure is unreliable, the concept is not sound, the sample size is too small, you're going to keep analyzing your data until you get p-values that are publishable. And then because you've measured the brain, or measured you know, neurotransmitters, the top journal is still going to publish it. So I, I just feel like this has been obvious for a, a long time. But the people who ha- have been most empowered just have just let it happen. Now, and I think it was in a 2017 interview, Tom Insull, who was head of NIMH, I think, for 12 years, and, and he was behind a lot of the, this movement, he said that he acknowledges that that after you know billions of dollars, he the result was a lot of clever studies. I think clever was the word that he used, but we haven't moved the needle on mental health or suicide or hospitalizations. And he takes responsibility for that. I appreciate him saying that, but I feel that true taking responsibility would have been him staying as head of NIMH and overseeing a a genuine course correction. Instead, his replacement seems to have doubled down on this approach and it's you know I think connectomes haven't been debunked yet so I just want to go on record that connectomes are the next thing that ten years from now people are going to laugh at.
0: You are on the record, and remember that David is the one who predicted that uh, Rousey was going to lose. So, <laughs> well,
2: R- Robin Black made a more definitive prediction than I did, but I but I I am I do I'm I'm on the record that Holm had the better chance of yeah. winning. Yeah,
0: well, you you predicted more than I did. <laughs> Let's put it that way, But I <laughs> thought there was a zero percent chance of her losing. So this is on the record, too. I'll save this clip for 10 years from now. We'll okay. We'll look back. So one thing that it's it seems like there, in one way, there's not a lot of reason to be optimistic in light of what you just said. Do you think that open science and that movement will help with any of the matters that you just brought up?
2: You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm so sick of seeing studies published that obviously... Uh, seem to fail indicators of replicability, so I'm really glad that people are paying attention to that. I also used to have a big problem with the journal uh, Psych Science, and, you know, back in grad school, I would tell a friend, show me five studies in that journal, I'll show you four that won't replicate, Um, and, uh, you know, and I also resigned from the editorial board of a fairly premier journal in clinical psychology because I was so sick of them publishing biological studies that um, either were underpowered, you know, grossly underpowered, or, we're measuring constructs that weren't even the right constructs, but because they were in a biological data set, they would somehow get published. So I've, I've really been wanting change for a while. At the same time, I think um, I really have mixed feelings about some of the things that are being emphasized in open science. Um, so some of what's happened in open science is, is phenomenal, and I'm a dinosaur who has to catch up, like um, putting the data sets, you know, making those publicly available, um, making your analytic approach you know, sort of... a uh, you know, easy to reproduce. Um, I think those are really wonderful things. But some of it, I, th- I think, is going about it the wrong way. I think that um, one thing that's happening is people are just valuing new markers of replicability uh, and then using those to decide a study is a good kind of study. And I think that's wrong. So, for example, the new markers are um if you pre-registered and then you get a badge in some journals, now people are going to see that study is more likely to replicate. There's already tons of evidence that people are deviating from their pre-registration plans. Um, I also think that there's going to be a million ways for people to abuse this, either on purpose or sort of unconsciously. So, for example, um, you know, oh my gosh, I just ran some analysis, and like it looks like you know aerials, variables A and B might have a really interesting relationship. Oh, fantastic. Listen, stop what you're doing, pre-register a, a data analytic plan, you know, and then let's do it, you know, and and like that kind of conversation where it's not ridiculous, it's well-meaning, but, but there, there's a pre-registration after results are known. Now that can also happen on purpose. People can just outright find things and then submit pre-registrations knowing that it wasn't really pre-registered. Now that might sound ridiculous, but there's a whole cottage industry of people uh, revealing hypothesis, uh, hypothesizing after results are known. People for decades would see what was happening in their data set. It might be different from what they expected. And then they would rewrite the introduction section with a different hypothesis. And people just did that as if it was regular science. They weren't doing it because they were evil or trying to be fraudsters. People were just taught that's what you do. You need to properly set up your findings. So if people could, you know, HARK was the acronym, hypothesize after results are known, and there's you know tons of evidence this was happening for decades, of course people are going to start prarking, pre-registering after results are known. The same thing's going to happen. So we used to have a case, you know, we we have the old markers of what was supposed to be uh, solid replicable science. They were hypotheses, um, a priori hypotheses, multiple studies. And p-values, you know, less than 0.05. That was the whole point of the p-value, to identify findings that we're going to replicate more. Now, if you look at one of the worst offenders, it turns out that, uh, you know, sorry, social psychologists, it's not me, but other other folks who say that social psychology is among the worst offenders of non-replicable studies. And when you look at the premier journal, uh, JPSB, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, personality end actually is, is fairly good on replicability, but the social psychology end isn't. But if you look at what the typical article that was published, it hits all those external markers. Uh, our priori hypotheses, multiple studies building on each other, and significant p-values. And yet it was the hallmark of not of not um, replicating. And I think that history is just going to repeat itself if we rely on pre-registration to be an external marker of what's going to replicate, um, and, and you know badges from various journals. I just think it's... The wrong approach to rely on external markers. External markers will be abused, just like everything else has in the human history of science. So, what I think really needs to happen is the culture needs to change, um, and that and that is happening. You know, uh, for a long time, if you if your study was clever or flashy or had the right kind of biological or laboratory measure, that's what people thought is wow, that's so novel and interesting, and that's what people valued. They didn't value, you know, the work that this lab puts out, it replicates. Whether it's them or somebody else who looks at that, that phenomena again, it replicates. Wow, that lab's a good lab. We haven't been at that place. Now, I think we're getting there now. I think with uh, with many labs and with uh, uh, the work that Brian Nosek is, is doing, I think the culture is changing and people are realizing if you publish things that don't replicate, people are going to notice. And that part of being a good scientist is building a a reputation for publishing work that replicates. So I think that is the most valuable part of the movement. And I think that in the end is what's going to matter. People just need to learn that if you publish things that don't replicate and that's a consistent pattern, people are not going to see you as a good scientist. And the incentives need to change in terms of public perception. The incentives need to change in terms of what journals value. They should not be publishing uh, between subject studies with biological measures if there's 15 people in one condition. Um, at best, that's a pilot. It's not even clear that that has value as a pilot other than feasibility. So I, I have some mixed feelings on on how the open science movement is progressing. I think on balance it's a positive, but I'm, my biggest fear is that it's just going to create a new generation of external markers of what is good science in that, just like p-values and hypotheses in multiple studies, uh, you know, have have been either research degrees of freedom have been abused. The, the same thing is going to happen with a new set of external markers.
0: So the key lesson that we should be learning is changing the incentives to fundamentals of science, good psychometric studies, using correct power, not p-hacking, and rewarding that with prestige and other types of reinforcement and have norms that reinforce that. And it sounds like your concern is that instead some of these external markers that I think are meant to be concrete incentives and maybe that you can receive more quickly than a reputation over time or something like that, that unfortunately that can have downsides if people can achieve them without doing what they're supposed to do.
2: As hard as it is for us to believe it, because it sounds so strange or odd, um, that is, we've proven that that that's what happens when you have external markers. People start there, there starts to be slippage in understanding their value and how they're applied, and people abuse them. Um, I think you know, you could argue with p values. Maybe people didn't properly understand them, um, but with you know, hypothesizing after results are known, that this has been something that has existed for decades. That people, you know, you get a result that's different, and you change your introduction section so that now you're hypothesizing. You know, that's supposed to be marker of of good science, and to increase the chances that something's replicable, replicable. Because if you hypothesize something in advance, and uh, you know, you're you're sort of going on record that we're looking for this. It, it's supposed to remove the possibility that any quote unquote significant finding you find. Now has has a story, you know. Now you're capitalizing on chance, and you're decreasing the chances that your your will replicate. But if you hypothesize in advance, you're narrowing, you know, the outcomes that that will sort of support what you're saying. Something as simple as that was just completely abused, not just by unethical people, but it just became a culture that, of course, you know, you you know, rejigger your hypothesis once you see your results so that you have a nice story to tell from introduction to discussion. If that can happen, which it did, of course that's going to happen with pre-registration and, and other kinds of external markers. So, yes, it's exactly what you said. It's the culture that has to change. You know, What can't be denied is if you've published a series of four or five studies on a phenomenon, people care about it enough that they start testing it. And then there's actually outlets to publish non-replications instead of file drawers. People figure it out. That will change the culture. That will change the incentive. And ideally, that needs to happen at all levels. Uh, you know, public perception among scientists, jur- what journals value, and uh, you know, grants have to. grants should not fund two million dollars for an underpowered study using fMRI. They should fund four million dollars for a properly powered study. Um, that also has to change.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on those. I mean, I this is just of enormous importance and certainly within I mean it matters for all of psychology, but certainly in clinical psychology and mental health, it, there seems, at least for me, feels like a, a particular urgency to get this right.
2: Yeah, especially when you're talking about things like, like suicide where the stakes are, you know, obviously high. There is urgency to get it right.
0: Well, I do you have time to talk about a totally different topic, which is combat sports?
2: I always have time to talk about combat sports.
0: Awesome. Well, maybe we should talk about our own backgrounds in martial arts. Do you want to start?
2: Sure. Um, I guess I trained in Shotokan Karate for about 10 years, that's just, it's just a classical Japanese karate. If any of you folks fo- uh, follow uh, MMA, um, that's uh, Lyoto Machida style. And then after you know doing some sparring using MMA rules and f- figuring out very quickly the limits of of classical Japanese karate, I started uh, you know training in in jujitsu and uh, you know a little bit of kickboxing. And you know I'm I'm older, my body's a little fragile, so na- nowadays I am full time jujitsu, but don't do any more uh, punching kicking. I know you have a judo background. I was so excited when I learned that, but it sounds like maybe you haven't trained recently.
0: That's right. But I, I've at least identified the local place. You encouraged me to just go back a few years ago because I think uh-huh. that you correctly identified that the thought is like, I've got to get into really good shape before I go back, but then I'll never go back. So, right. so yes, I'm am a yeah. I'm a black belt in judo. I'm a brown belt in Jiu Jitsu. Jiu Jitsu, I haven't done in a very long time, but when I was growing up doing Judo, I I competed quite a bit in it. And then I continued through college. And the last time that I actually did any Judo was the year I was on internship, which was about 10 years ago. My father is a sixth degree black belt in Judo, and he just went back. So I really have no excuses. Wow. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you're right. The first rule is not, you know, get in proper shape. The first rule is show up. Now, the second rule is don't get yeah. hurt. So, you know, you, you can't. But I didn't I either forgot or, or didn't know that you were also a brown belt in jujitsu. Like, you know, what a lot of people outside uh, combat sports don't realize is in judo and jujitsu, brown belts and black belts are a legit combat sports athlete. Like That's really impressive. I say that in part because there's a lot of kinds of karate where if you're a brown belt or even, you know, in a black belt, an early black belt at least, I don't know that you're legit yet. Um, I I had a black belt in Shotokan karate and just got destroyed in my one MMA fight. Um, I didn't I didn't even belong there. The guy was um, fighting was so much better than me, and and he trained less than I had. He just trained in things like wrestling and jujitsu, which um, uh, on average are more effective. So I I am so impressed. I can't believe that I didn't know that you're also a brown belt in jujitsu, or at least I forgot that, and a black belt in judo. That's that's legit. People should not mess with you.
0: Thank you very much. I I appreciate it. I. I also I wrestled a little bit in high school, as well. Uh, that was only a year though, and so like I said, I it's it's funny because the second rule I violated the last time I went back, I did actually get hurt. But it's it's time. It's been a decade. I think I can handle it and just be a little bit more cautious this time. Do you
2: think you'd go back to judo or jujitsu? I think jujitsu is easier on the body.
0: That's a good point. I was thinking of going back to judo just because I was most familiar with that, but maybe right. Maybe I should consider jujitsu.
2: Well, if if it's in your bones, maybe you you know, with proper body positioning and technique, you'll you'll keep yourself safe. I tried to train train judo a little bit a couple of years back, and I realized fast that the nonstop you know being thrown on the mat um, was just not going to be a long-term solution.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think some of the mat work is a little bit easier.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 safer. Like, you know, I've, I've got, you know, bad shoulders and bad knees, but, you know, g- grappling and jiu-jitsu, I feel like for the most part, I can, you know, keep myself safe going to positions that I want to go. And But, you know, every now and then people from judo show up and th- they're fascinating when they show up because in certain positions on the ground, they're almost like beginners, but other kinds of positions, once they get a grip on you, it's just over. <laughs> and there is nothing like the experience of being thrown by a, by a judo black belt. It is so fast and so certain. Um, you know, like that—that that you you have now, but you've been completely divorced from the ground until it's until you're smashed back on the ground. It's, it's a really impressive martial art, and it's interesting the way it dovetails with jujitsu, and and yet has has a lot of big differences.
0: Exactly, and judo's the gentle way, but still <laughs> sometimes it can, it's not
2: that it can gentle be much to be on more the receiving end. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fine. I didn't know it was called that. I, I feel like because when you're when you're choked out in jujitsu by by an expert, it doesn't even really hurt. It's it's more just. You know, they cut off the blood to your brain and the room starts to close and you realize you better tap. But it doesn't even hurt. When you're thrown, you know, by a judoka, that hurts. There's an impact. Yes. You could easily get knocked out if you don't how, you do know how to fall correctly.
0: Oh, that's true. I mean, I think that anyone who's new, they spend like the first two weeks just learning how to fall.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that that is definitely a skill that should not be underappreciated, or, or you can just like me decide, uh, okay, maybe, maybe judo is, I'm past the time to get into judo, I'll stick with jiu-jitsu.
0: Yeah, that, I, I will look into that, I think, because I do miss it, I do want to get back into martial arts, and so you've been able to bring in your psychology interests and expertise with combat sports, what kind of consulting do you do?
2: Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. I mean, because I've been a a sports fan of various kinds for a long time, and my favorite thing about all sports, you know, basketball, football, is that you know at the highest level to succeed, you need a very high level, very intellectual game plan, but then you then have to implement it in real time in a really physically demanding, you know, environment. Um, And then you know, for me, martial arts is the epitome of that. So it's just I find it you know utterly fascinating that way, and so. I started off just on the side, right, writing this blog for a local mixed martial arts promotion, just sort of analyzing fights as they happened. And in one particular fight, I wrote about how some fighter made a, made a, you know, a strategic mistake in, in the third round. And, um, and anyway, it turned out that fighter read it. And, and and was like, yeah. You know, he he wrote me on Facebook. You're right. You're right. Like that is what happened. You know, let's meet. Let's meet and talk. So that ended up being an into um, different kinds of consulting because he is a. Uh, he ended up being a world amateur champion, and he changed with some other uh, folks who are you know, champion kickboxer, jujitsu, and sometimes MMA. So you know, I don't have a lot of time for this kind of thing, so I have to pick my spots. But you know, over the years, I've probably consulted for six or seven different different athletes, and. <clears throat> You know, the universal problems that, that, that are psychology-related, you know, they're, they're just different for everyone. You know, some people might be as straightforward as, you know, I, I, the fight started and I didn't feel ready. And then, you know, figuring out for them what exactly happened. Is it fear, anxiety? It turned out with one person, they had just spent the entire day leading up to this fight, which was their biggest fight, keeping themselves nice and relaxed, um, because they thought that was the best strategy, but you know, we, we all know from you know optimum arousal theory that you don't want to be nice and relaxed when a fight begins. You, you need to be somewhere in the middle. You know, if, if we're talking a one to ten skill, you don't want to be a ten off the charts, but you need to be I don't know four seven. You don't want to have a fight start and you're at a zero or a one. And, and so for him, it was as simple as you know figuring out because he had never had that experience before this one fight. So we sort of figured out what was different leading up to the fight. He told me the whole story. And then we figured out, all right, well, you know, where do you want to be? Sounds like not a zero or a one. And I forget what he chose exactly. It may have been like a six or a seven. And so then it was like, all right, if you fill your stuff at a zero or a one next time, you know, what could help you get pumped up a little bit more? And, you know, we, it was a very practical solution. Basically, watch some of the earlier fights that kind of, you know, upped his arousal a little bit. And then there's someone, you know, someone else uh, who I consulted with who, has zero problem feeling ready to fight just happy to be there reports feeling no fear and anxiety the problem with this particular person was he just could not maintain a lifestyle that was the lifestyle he knew was what he needed to do meaning consistently not just training but eating healthy um, and he just couldn't get himself to do that so you know th- there's millions of different ways where psychology intersects with combat sports whether it's in the fight itself implementing a game plan even when you're getting hit in the face uh being able to take corner advice during the 45 seconds they have to talk to you in between rounds even though you're you know your your limbic brain is going crazy but then there's also basic things like how to you know how to train in smart ways uh how to prepare yourself the day before the fight hours before the fight things like that so you know i it's i just absolutely love it and i've also been lucky enough to be be, um, invited on some mixed martial arts podcasts and and, uh, like a fight network uh, television show a couple times and theoretically writing a book on psychology of combat sports right now with uh, with an MMA analyst so it's it's just been a ton of fun
0: oh that's so cool I didn't know you were writing a book about this
2: yeah, we'll see. There's there's an introduction written, there's a long section on emotional readiness that's mainly done, there's a long section on game planning, although oh, we just changed it to uh, strat- strategy as a, as a more appropriate term, that's at least a ha- complete draft but has a lot of tweaking to do, and yeah, the, the Holly Holm-Ronda Rousey fight's going to get uh, some f- uh, f- featured in that because of the psychological dynamics leading up to it. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes of it, but it's, it's being written theoretically and a little bit practically.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. Um, well, I'll ask, if you don't mind, after after we're done recording, to send me links to some of that stuff for people who are listening and, and are interested And for example, some of the podcasts you've been on. I think that would be cool to listen to. Sure. Okay, great. Well, I want to make sure before we wrap up today, and I really appreciate talking about these really interesting topics. I feel like, honestly, I could talk about this stuff for hours, but... Um, before we wrap up for Deadeye Council, I wanted to ask you why Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the best show in the world.
2: It is a really good show. I, I don't know if I'm ready to call it the best, but <laughs> I, I have to admit that after, I think my, my wife used to watch it in the background, and it took me a year of her watching in the background to start getting familiar with characters, and suddenly I would ask questions like, wait, why is, why is Spike upset? Wait, what just happened? And eventually I realized I was actually interested in the show and it's good. The problem with it though, and I'm curious if you agree, is the first season, like it took it a while for it to get its legs. So I don't know that it's good right away. I don't know if you have the same experience. So it's hard to convince people to get into it, but it's a really good show and I don't know why it's so good.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I had some friends who I have, I really trust their taste and they recommended it. And I watched the first season and I was like, uh it's not it's not that good but you know I thought it was fine but I, I was i I didn't really see what they saw in it but then once I you're right as the show goes on it starts to get really good and so and there's definitely some stuff that like the special effects and stuff like that that doesn't age as well but the storylines and the characters are really interesting and of course there are some interesting combat scenes in there yeah
2: I think it just turns out that um. I mean uh, that Joss Whedon is a good storyteller. Now you know there's been some, you know, some unfortunate controversy around his personal behavior that's come out in recent years. So I feel I feel guilty appreciating his talents. But you know I, th- I think if we're talking about why Buffy is good, I think it's in large part because th- there's a particular kind of storytelling that's both in a ridiculously unrealistic, you know, science fiction fantasy kind of realm and yet it's somehow very grounded because it has the right characters and to some extent the right actors and actresses. So, I don't know. if, if I, I i never would have guessed in advance I would have liked that show. I, I i had to have it on in the background for a year before I realized that, uh, I, before I got pulled in, and then thought, wow, this is maybe one of the best shows I've ever seen.
0: Definitely, and I, I think that one of the things that at least I think Joss Whedon said is that the name itself made people think that it wasn't going to be a good show. It's kind of a weird name to, to get into. So even there, it's like, what, you know, what is this all about? But once you move on from that, it's, it's really good. Um, what is the best show in the world? I
2: don't know. I feel like if we were to limit it to the first two seasons, I might say I lost. Um, I don't know. I've learned, I've never actually seen any episodes, but I've learned uh, from Family Guy that if you say Breaking Bad is the best show ever, except for maybe The Wire, you get a lot of people enthusiastically nodding. But I've never seen either of the shows. But I think, but I think Star Wars. Um, sorry to harp on this. Other than the prequels, I think Star Wars might be the best story ever. And I, I, I don't know if there's ways to, more ways to work in Jedi talk into your Jedi podcast. I, I'd be on board for that.
0: We really need to work on that. Honestly, we do have, we have maybe at least three episodes dedicated to it. And I and I'm try, but they were. We've been doing this podcast for three years now. And we definitely had some stuff focused on Darth Vader. And, I, and I'll, I'll send you links to them, but I wonder if they even hold up after <laughs> this time. I mean, it's only been a few years. <laughs> well, Here's why
2: it works. Because when you, when you look at the Jedi Council, when you, when you take everything into account, that's, you know, quote unquote canon. Um, there are a bunch of people who, they're kind of like academics. They're trying to understand how the world works. They're trying to be very stoic and objective about it. And they have some incredibly strong, good qualities And they also have incredible blind spots where they mess up a lot and, and, you know, really cause problems. And, and that's what we are, as you know, clinicians and researchers trying to understand how, how, you know, how humans work. We're we're sort of the same, you know. We really try to be super objective, and we have a lot of really nice strengths. But we also are humans and have a lot of flaws, and we mess up a lot, and we set our field back sometimes. Um, Jedi really messed up <laughs> with Anakin Skywalker from oh. a certain perspective. So there, there you go.
0: Yeah.
2: More, more, an, another podcast with some Jedi talk.
0: Uh, I like that significance of the name of this podcast. Well, thank you so much for everything today. It was very interesting talking to you and would love to do it again sometime.
2: Sounds great. Really uh, appreciate being on. Thank you. A lot of fun.
1: Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.